0: So sweet. Thanks Steve for hopping on the Never Broke Again podcast with Josh and Andrew. Steve is, uh, what is it? it's blue fishing, the art of making things happen, do- making shit happen, doing things, going around like a madman, handing out flyers, <laughs> having secret passwords to passages that lead you to a walkway to a bar of some sort. That's basically it. <laughs> Perfect. What? Perfect. So thanks for hopping on Steve. We're happy to have you here. And basically we just have people on such as yourself that are super successful share with our audience, what skills that you know that wow. will help you not never go broke again.
1: Okay. All right. Well, I, I probably got to cause I've been bro- broke quite a few times and that's usually a good training, training lesson to not do it again. So I've learned a few things along the way.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. So like, with your book, "Blue Fishing," like you basically just seemed like you were a super charismatic person, just like always looking for people's best interests, even though maybe you had to like forego something in the present. Like I remember, like people were like, "Hey, should I come to this bar tonight?" And you're like, "No, our bar sucks tonight. Go to the bar down the street, but come back here on Friday." And that really resonated with myself. And so, like, is that something that you just learned? Did you have to like learn through trial and error? How did, how did that philosophy come to fruition?
1: So, so that was the, the whole, the whole concept of the, uh, the, 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 service industry that I created was something that I had for just over 20 years. I don't do it now. Now I do, um, media and speaking and coaching and all that kind of stuff, but I, I would, I would argue your point of being charismatic. I don't think. I'm not the kind of person you want to see walking down a dark alley at 11 o'clock at night. You know, I'm not that kind of warm and fuzzy kind of character. So everything I ever did had to have a purpose. And my purpose was I wanted to have a conversation with rich people. If I looked after their interests, they didn't care what I looked like. Uh, we're We're in very much of a vain society now where people will jump on, you know, TikTok or Instagram or doing their little uh selfie videos now. And it's all about them. How pretty do they look like? Is my cleavage showing? Do I look fat in this outfit? No one gives a shit if what you're doing is providing the solution to that problem. So I discovered very early on that if I was very cold and blunt, for one people found it clear and refreshing. Um and secondly, I had that best interest. Now, don't come into this party tonight because you won't be happy. And I would get told off by my um, – because I was a doorman of a nightclub. I would get told off by my boss. But I used to say to him, No, you don't understand. If I tell them tonight's not a good night, the next time I see them and I tell them this is an exceptional night, bring your friends, you'll get three times as many people coming in. And so it ended up working a lot better. I didn't expect it to turn into the, to the world's leading uh, experiential concierge firm that it did. But my early, my early movement was I want to gain your trust. I want to gain your credibility because I want to have a conversation with you. That was my entirety of lesson. I want to be able to engage you in a conversation. So if I can look after you, sending you to another nightclub, getting you hooked up with, you know, some celebrity or something, if I can do that, I can sit down with you and have a conversation because all I ever wanted to do the, I only had one goal. I wanted to talk to rich people. That was it.
2: And what have you learned from talking to the rich people?
1: I've learned that it was a terrible goal. Um, (laughs) it's, it's, I'm glad that couldn't have been better set up when you're 18 years old, you want to be rich. No 18-year-old wants to be successful or wealthy. They want to be rich, okay? So when you're 18 years old, you sit there going, oh, I want to be rich, and it's monetary. I want a million dollars in my bank account. I want to drive a Ferrari. I want to, you know, fly on private jets. And then you you get to be a millionaire, and you realize I'm still scrambling to pay the kids' private school bills. The bottom line of it is if you live in Manhattan – and you've got a million bucks you ain't living in Manhattan it's as simple as that so it really is it's quite a strange thing so when I was younger I wanted to talk to rich people until I realized no I don't I don't want to talk to rich people I don't want to talk to wealthy people I want to talk to successful people So I kept on editing what I was looking for and asking the right question. I remember meeting up with a guy that was very wealthy, had loads of money. And I said to him, hey, I need to ask you a question. How come you're rich and I'm not? (laughs) And it's like me asking your penis size. You know, it just gets people uncomfortable. You know, even though it's a number, you know, you say something to someone about being rich and they go, my bank account, my portfolio, my house equity. It's a number. It's not an answer. It's just a number. So then I realized because of the friction and the temperature change in the conversation, I used to say to people, oh, I don't like that question. I better change the question. Hey, how come you're wealthy and I'm not? And again, this was a shitty question because people would be like, I found God. I found my wife. My wife gave me two wonderful children. They are everything to me. And I'm thinking, fuck that. I'm not going to join your church or marry your wife. So this isn't helping me. So then I would tweak the question again, and I'd say to people, hey, how come you're successful and I'm not? And that was the holy grail. That was the one that got me the answers. And I ended up running this uh, uh, concierge firm called Bluefish for 25 years, I think it was, and I literally dealt with the most powerful people in the planet. I, I had clients that owned things like countries, and my clients would tell me things, and I would interview them. And I wasn't, a, I wasn't a great social bee, but I would get them to hang out with Elton John or you know hang out with the Pope or Elon Musk or go backstage here or front row there or down to the Titanic or close museums for a dinner party. I would do all of this stuff, not because I wanted to do it, but because they wanted to do it to show off to their friends. But I knew by doing it, I could actually address that last question with them and go, hey, I've been meaning to ask you. How come you're successful? And the good thing about success, this is the beautiful thing about success, is it is the a cheapest thing that you can change, but the most impactful. You literally, when someone gives you some information, you literally can be sitting in that chair and you can get it. It's like, like for argument's sake, and I do this whenever I speak, I say to people, How many people have lost weight by buying a diet book? And you get a whole bunch of people stick their hands up, and I call out bullshit. No one has lost weight by buying a diet book. They've lost weight by actioning the information in that book. Now, no one's become wealthy or rich, however you want to term it, by just buying a book or buying a course or anything. They've got it as a byproduct of a successful mindset. And today, the problem is too many people look at their bank account. Screw your bank account. I, I, I joked with you earlier about being, uh, being rich. I honestly don't know how much is in my bank account. And that probably sounds like the stupidest thing for a business owner to, to brag about. You don't know how much money you've got. Either you're an idiot with money or you're arrogant and obnoxious. Now to help you, I'm both of those things. But the other thing is I noticed as I was growing up and I was taking this mindset and I was getting involved in businesses and I was investing, I realized I became a slave to my bank account. And to explain that, and we've all been there, you look at your bank account one day and you got 150 grand in there, you know, liquid, just sitting there. And you go, yeah, I'm doing all right here. And what do you do? You get lazy. And all of a sudden, that 150 grand starts coming down real fast. And all of a sudden, there's 20 grand left in there. And you go, shit, I've got to go to work. And then you start hustling and getting involved in the deals you shouldn't be getting involved in. So for me, I found that money was a horrible bellwether of which I reacted badly to. It was almost like I, had a, I was allergic to it. My reactions were not good. They were not thoughtful. They were not well designed. So for that reason, I actually said to my wife, I handle money badly. So she went, fine. I'll give you three credit cards. Each credit card you can spend up to 50 grand on, okay, which means I can be anywhere in the world, and if there's an emergency, I can get a hotel, I can get a flight, I can get medical, I, you know, it's fine. Okay, doesn't mean you spank out your credit cards. It means in any situation. And how many times have we been somewhere, especially when you're overseas, and you give them like an American Express card, and they go, sorry, we don't take Amex. And you go, oh, shit, I've got to give you a MasterCard. And maybe someone's tried to fraud it, and it's frozen or something, or they're trying to send you a code, and you don't have your phone turned on, so you're not getting a code, and you've got to use the other visas. So by having those three cards... I can survive anywhere else in the planet. But now I get to pick the deals that I want to pick. I get to pick the relationships that I want to choose. I get to pick the opportunities that excite me and not necessarily my bank balance. And the strange thing is the byproduct is I don't have to worry about my bank balance.
2: so you're focused on, okay, the rich, the wealth, the rich. Okay. That didn't work. Wealthy. That didn't work. So successful. And then you touched on mindset. So when you asked, Hey, what made you successful? Were you, what, what did they say? What was there one that resonated more than, than others that you asked this question to three, three, three people,
1: not three, one people, fish, two three fish things.
2: What do I need to say the password? One fish, two fish, red fish, blue fish.
1: No, the, the, the <laughs> thing was, When I was asking these people, once I'd got my question right, and I was asking them, how come you're successful? um, I suddenly started noticing that there was a repetition. Now, I could be talking with someone in Korea. I could be speaking to someone in Idaho. And you know, it was exactly the same. The cultural differences, and there's a lot of cultural differences in how people do business. But I noticed there wasn't a cultural difference in the three things that made people successful, regardless of where they were in the world. So it was the exact same same three things, and I'll give them to you. The first thing was time. The more successful you are, you realize that there's one thing you can't replicate, build, or purchase, time. You end up valuing time. There isn't a single successful person in the planet than in the last two years has tweeted, hey, what shall I binge watch on Netflix? Not a single one. Every successful person on the planet goes, hey, this may be my last hour. What can I do to create the most impact out of it? Now, that impact may be playing with your kids in the park. It may be focusing on a new business opportunity. But you value the time above Non-successful people. So the first thing that was common in every single conversation I had was how they viewed time, and how they focused on the impact that they could create within that time, because they knew they could make more money, but they could never make more time.
2: So when, how, how old were you when you learned that one?
1: I was uh, when I so I was still dorming in at about early twenties. I got to about the twenty five when I was starting to do all the kind of like the parties and events. Um, and I started asking these questions when I was in my early, in my kind of like mid twenties.
2: That's early. To it was that. early.
1: And and like an arrogant little shit, I would take it, not do much with it right. and then screw up. Or well, Cause you're
2: young. So you don't, you're young, it, and there's you so think much time
1: nothing can go wrong. So right. you go, Oh, here's an opportunity. I'll sell my house. I'll sell my parents' house and I'll sell my next door neighbor's house to invest in this opportunity. And then you lose it all. So, you know, you realize there are things that actually happen. And like everything, the lessons in life don't come from success. They come from failures. It's the shit that goes wrong that gives you the biggest wisdom. And people say to me, oh, have you ever failed at anything? Nope, never failed. A day so so what's
2: the biggest failure or adversity that, that hits you? That never made you one. never Okay. No,
1: and I know and I know that's an arrogant statement you don't want to hear, but no. I've never failed. I've become educated. Right, right. So what is the greatest education you've ever had, Steve? Okay. Getting into bad relationships, signing up on contracts without reading a small print, investing in deals because they have a celebrity or an icon behind it, and I'm thinking, well, if they're involved, how could this deal possibly go wrong? And basically – getting involved with things with your eyes and not your stomach. You see, I believe our stomach, you know, like when you meet someone and you kind of think something doesn't feel right. You know, we've all said that, you know, I've got a funny feeling in my stomach about this and we don't trust it. And then what we do is we look with our eyes and we go, well, he's got a fancy, fancy watch. He's got a fancy car. It must be fine. And then we get involved in the deal only to realize that The watches are fake, and the car was rented for that night. We don't trust our gut. So my education came from not trusting my gut and trusting my eyes. Uh, That was probably my biggest education. I remember signing up for a deal, and here's the dumb thing. I got involved with one of the largest events in Hollywood, okay? Massive event. I became an official partner of this event. And I made shit loads of money out of it in the year's contract that I had with them. I hadn't read the small print that banned me from saying their name after the end of that year contract. If I mentioned their name or any reference to it, it was an instantaneous pre-agreed $150,000 fee that I would have to pay. So... On about the 14th month, I was going, hey, I'm not involved in this event this year, but it was great being involved in it last year. Bang, I got a bill for 150 grand. I was like, fuck off. Then I got the lawsuit. So I got 150 grand plus legal fees. And then on my website, I actually had a couple of flyers on there from the previous year, which I'd forgot to take off. Got another 150 grand bill. And I'm like, are you kidding and they were like, "It's in the document. You signed the document. You agreed to the." So I've never been able to mention that. But now, here's the thing that upset me. Yeah. It actually, may be quite violent. Okay. The next deal that I got, I looked for that clause, and it was there. Mm. And I went, "I'll get involved with you boys," but that clause is gone. And they went, "Fair enough. It was gone." And I ended up working with them for eight years. So I got really well educated. I lost. Well, I didn't lose. I spent probably $350,000 along with legal fees on becoming educated on how to read a contract.
2: (laughs) You could have gone to law school for cheaper.
1: (laughs) You you, you probably could. But out of the one deal that I changed on that, by second year, I'd reclaimed my losses. By second year. And I did eight years with that deal. Mm-hmm. Now, here's a funny little twist. The original company that tried fucking me with this contract actually came back to me and they said, hey, you're doing really well. Would you like to get back involved? And I said no. And I was happy to say no because of the way you handled people. And they were like, oh, we wouldn't do this again. You bite me in the left testicle. What's to stop you trying to bite me in the right one? No, never trust people. Trust your gut.
2: Nice.
0: Yeah. I like that. Hey, what was the you said you said there was like three things. Yeah, I think we yeah, only
2: were talking about on one, two, and three. But hey, as waiting any... on it, but you kept
1: interrupting me. But I'll give them to you regardless. So number two you remembered though? <laughs> <laughs> number two, relationships. Okay. The thing about relationships is, and we've all heard this, you know, rich people are very famous for going, Oh, let's do lunch. Oh, let's talk about this on the golf course. We've all heard that. Now, here's the daft thing. We look at that and we go, oh, that's what rich people do. Oh, I love your idea. Let's have cocktails and cigars. Let's have lunch. And you think, oh, that's just what rich people do. But then I discovered that they were getting to know the culture of the person. See, affluent, successful people, they get involved when the cultures are aligned. You see, if you share the same belief as me, if you share the same goal as me, the same drive as me, and you're not very good on writing emails or Excel spreadsheets, I can get you someone for that. But if our cultural focus is not aligned with the same goals and the same beliefs, I can't change that. So uh, successful people want to make sure that everyone in that sandpit is fighting for the same destination, fighting for the same goal. And if you've got any weaknesses, we'll employ those out or we'll get you trained on them. And so I noticed that they were actually taking on people that shared the same cultural belief. That was quite powerful for me because when I went back to my team, I realized that there were some people in my office that did a good job, but they didn't share the same vision as me they weren't as connected with what i was doing they didn't share the same uh, enjoyment of it they were there for the paycheck and they didn't share the same cultural value for me and that's why i realized i'd never gone out drinking with them on a friday night they did a good job during the week but we never ended up hanging out and i realized because these people were culturally different to me now when you've got a team where everyone is fighting for the same goal Your acceleration is exponential. It is just They come to the office in the morning, they go, hey, Steve, I was thinking about this. Why don't we try this? It's a great idea. You know, it's a shortcut when everyone in your sandpit is fighting to win the same battle. So that was number two. And then number three was the way they looked at opportunity. Okay? They looked at opportunity And they were open to it. And they always wanted to gamify things. This was the thing that really I found quite interesting. And probably the biggest example of that is Elon Musk. Okay? Very, very smart. We know that. But he's also got childlike five-year-old curiosity. Why can't we do that? Why does it have to be that way? Why can't we try this? Ooh, I want to push that button. We all... (laughs) We all think about it, but he is a prime example of that five-year-old curiosity. And I noticed that really successful people remained curious. You usually get bit in the ass when you think you've got all your shit handled. You know, I've got this. I'm sorted. I don't need any help. It works. It's been working like that forever. Leave it alone. That's usually the statement you make two seconds before it all goes to shit. But successful people are always curious, how can I change it? Do you remember Elon Musk, when he got into space travel, he literally said, what's the most expensive thing about rockets? The fuel cells. There's two bloody great fuel cells on the side of a rocket. It goes up, they fall off. They either spin into space, land in the ocean, but they're done, and then the rocket goes on. And he went, well, hang on a minute. If that's the most expensive loss on a rocket, because you know the rocket comes back, it has to. It's got astronauts in it. But if we could get those actual um, fuel cells back and quite simply just re-pump them of gas and send them up again, now it's a little bit more tricky than that. But childlike curiosity usually starts by simplifying the problem, doesn't it? If we can get those fuel cells back, fuel them up and strap them on again, we save a fortune. And that's what he did. I remember one of the other things that he did was he measured... the the width of a rocket. And I don't know if you're aware of this. They measured the width of a rocket and the only way it could be transported. And here's the dumb thing. For most of America's technology, the rockets have actually been built on the West Coast. Okay? And where do rockets take off? At the Cape, on the bloody East Coast. Okay? Why they are not built on the East Coast? I don't know. But West Coast is where it's all built. So they have to go all the way down through the Panama Canal and up again to be able to arrive, and then they are assembled in the East Coast. He measured them and realized that if he knocked off, and you're not going to believe this, three feet of the diameter, each piece could foot on the back of a uh, trailer and be driven across America by a truck. Now, with... As with the um, insulation over the years, being able to get denser and therefore thinner, he was able to reduce the diameter of the rocket without reducing the internals of the rocket just by better heat control. And then he was able to stick them on the truck and save that massive great haulage trip all the way through the Panama Canal and the potential of them falling off the side of a bloody boat. So that was it. It was the childlike curiosity to go, why? How can we? Why? Sh- why can't we do this? That childlike curiosity now has him as one of the richest people in the planet. But most successful people I met, that was that number three. They, remind- they remained a curious five-year-old.
2: So, so no, wait, number three is opportunity or child curiosity?
1: Well, it was the way they looked at the opportunity. Okay. So number three is the childlike curiosity of how they view opportunity. If you give me an opportunity, if you give me a business, if you give me a problem, it's the way they actually view it. So it's the perception that they, I was learned very, very early on that it's how we react to the opportunity is going to dictate to what we do with it. So with them trying to trying to stay a five year old curious kid, opens your mind more. It allows you to dream, create game if I smile at the problem in front of you. If every tough problem in the planet was given to a five-year-old, can you imagine some of the solutions we'd get?
2: I mean, there, there'd probably be a lot of bad ones.
1: Yeah, but, <laughs> but who, why do that, Andrew? Straight away, you went with the negative, right? Because I, I, have have fi- me- I have a
2: five-year-old <laughs>
1: Yeah, but how many times? How many times with childlike simplicity, as a child, just going, Well, why don't we just do that? And you go, oh, I never thought of that. Well, yes, I, there's well, going to be bad ones.
2: So, I actually, I have a six-year-old. Right, so I would, I would say he gamifies more than comes up with solutions. Um, so, yeah. I get, and to keep you know, so I get that that concept of it. I, I totally get that component. Coming up with the solutions, I feel like when I'm dealing with him, I'm answering and I'm showing him the path, the proper path a lot of the time, um of of which you know, road to go down. So I don't know if he's coming up with the solutions. But...
1: Just every now just just the way they can think. If you could if you could marry the intelligence of a mature grown up person with experience with the childlike innocence to just try anything isn't that a phenomenal combination yeah well, i'm not saying that yeah. we should give you know the the, the next budget calculation to a 5 year old well that's I'm the saying, beauty of having the kids
2: pair. that's the beauty of having kids do you have kids i have 3 yeah I, how old are they
1: uh, twenty five, twenty one, and 16.
2: Okay. So a little older and yeah, I mean, having kids, you remember, okay. Yeah. I had that, that kid mindset back then. And as an adult, I've, you know, chosen to push that out because, uh, it, it, it was, it didn't necessarily serve, but, uh, but yeah, that's a good reminder. Um, that there's more, there is more to life than money is, is what they teach me. Uh, but I want, I want to circle back to, uh, to first I wrote down, uh, do you know who Sam Zell is? No. You look just like him.
1: <laughs> He's a good looking fan, Or Sam Zell looks like Steve. Sam
2: Zell huh? looks like you. He's a, uh, multi-billionaire and, uh, a Hell's Angel, uh, undercover oh. Hell's Angel. And, uh, um, you, I uh, man, look him up. You. you
1: I have actually, uh, I've been asked many, many times
2: if I'm with the boys, but, uh, yeah. Um, no. So, and then you said, all right, Pete, you know, like then, then you circle, circling back a little bit, you, you said, all right, how do you get wealthy? And you said, oh, it's like penis size, right? So did you, did you mean like, is that more genetic? Do you think like the wealth component is more genetic or, or is that just kind of?
1: No, what I meant by that was, you know, if you speak to someone about. Um, about asking about the-
2: Is this a real question, Andrew? <laughs> I mean, is, is that what he thinks? Is is the wealth code more- It was game? a figure of speech, Andrew. Yeah, a figure of yeah, speech. It
1: was, it, I, I was speaking metaphorically, um, but- uh, Not know, literally. Yes. Yeah.
0: I, I like it, the literal get, one. People get
1: concerned- This isn't an OnlyFans
0: podcast, Andrew. I, look where your brain went. I, I'm not thinking that way. Uh, Steve's there with me. I know he is. <laughs> um got it yeah that's yeah. how do you combat being so direct do you think it's just your authentic self do people ever take it poorly
1: um yes and yes um i noticed as i was growing up i felt as though i didn't have any of the attributes to be successful You know, I didn't look suave. I didn't look appealing. um, I didn't look friendly. I didn't sound classy. I can't spell for shit. Uh, So there was all of these things that made me me aware that I couldn't walk into a fancy party in a tuxedo and impress you to part with your, your American Express black card. But if I focused on being the solution to your problem, And being direct about, do you want this done? Great. It'll be this. If I focused on that kind of directness, it gave people the ability uh, to make a quick decision. A lot of people were like, I'm not doing that. Why not? What can you tell me more? Not really. You want this done? It's going to cost you this. Pay me. and I'll do it. And a lot of people were like, I'm not trusting this guy, you know, because they expected the wool and the fluff around it. Um, and I couldn't do that. Uh, then as business kind of grew and I was starting to get people to trust in me, of course, now I'm riding in with credibility with Richard Branson, you know, Sir and John the Pope. You know, I've now got all of this credibility. That If I go, yeah, I'm going to do this. It's going to cost you 50 grand. Your head's going to go to, well, if those guys trust him, I must be able to trust him. But I still find a lot of people don't like my directness. Um, I also find millions more find it refreshing find it clear and find it mis- uh, impossible to misunderstand now in business there are three kinds of people one of them's terrible one group of people are gonna love you i guarantee you at this moment in time there are people listening to this that go oh, i fucking love steve sims he's absolutely awesome i want his babies he's brilliant you know There there may be a couple of those out there listening to this show. I also guarantee you there's a bunch of people that may already have left going, I don't like him. He's crude. He's obnoxious. He's arrogant. I want nothing to do with a guy. How the hell did those guys let him on the podcast? I've turned off. Now, those people, good. They have saved me a bunch of time. Those are not the worst people in this trio. The worst people are the fences. Those people that are sitting there going, I'm not sure what he's trying to get at. I don't know where he's coming from. I'm not sure if I trust him. I like him. I loathe him. You know, I'm really not sure. And do you know, that's your fault. So by you being very clear about your message, what you do, what you offer, and to who you offer it to, you can't have any of that confusion. If you've got fences in your life, in your email list, in your Facebook group, that ain't too sure what you do. That's your problem for sending out a mixed message, or worst, a confusing message. So for me, I'm very blunt. When I was a concierge, you paid me to get shit done and to make you sound more interesting. Now I run a company, Sims Media, I get your brand out there. I amplify you in a non-confusing manner that gets you the clients you want rather than the clients you got. Very, very direct. I avoid fence sitters because they're a pain in the ass and I don't want to have a conversation with them. I need the conversation to be at the beginning when I tell you clearly and concisely what it is I do. So don't be frightened of being blunt. Don't be frightened of being crystal clear. And the other thing is today... We get mixed bullshit messages on an hourly basis from this thing. The whole fake news empire has exploded. We've had COVID. We've had um, uh, Asian hate, Black Lives Matter, Me Too. COVID doesn't exist. It's a rouge to put tracking devices in our eyeballs. There's all this stuff going on out there. We don't want to sift through the information to be able to understand if it's easy to understand and it works for us. We want someone to be crystal clear. You want to be taller? Take this pill. You want to be richer? Read that book. You want to come hang out with me? Sign up there. People like directness. They find it easier and they actually find it refreshing. And I've actually had clients say to me, you're so easy to understand. And they've they've said to me, sometimes you say inappropriate things, but we get you. We understand you, and we're in your camp. We're in your sandpit. But those other people, they're nowhere near me, and I'm very happy about that.
0: Can, can you be too, too direct or too offensive to someone in a negative way rather than coming from a good place in your heart where even though you may be telling them something they don't want to hear, it's something that they need to hear?
1: So there's a difference between rudeness and being direct. Like if I start throwing abuse at you, there is no benefit to that. Okay, that's just me being a vicious, violent person and just, you know, being horrible to you. Okay, there's no benefit in that. But can I be too direct by giving you information that helps you, even though you don't want to hear it? Can I be too direct? I'm asking you.
2: Uh, No,
1: if it's for your benefit.
2: Right. No, and you might have to. You, you might have to grab their shoulders and do it. You know what I mean? Like
1: you may have to slap them into three right. days of Sunday and go. For fuck's sake, stop doing that. It's hurting your family. It's hurting your kids. It's hurting your life, and it doesn't need to. If you just did this, now that's a very aggressive approach. But if the end and the byproduct of you changing is a stronger family, a stronger you then that intervention's necessary. There's no such thing as a peaceful, calm, loving intervention. They sometimes come across very abrupt because sometimes you need that abruptness in order for you to change direction.
0: When did that happen to you? It happens a lot.
1: Um, I, I'm i very fortunate that I'm very, very comfortable in who I am. Um, I have great clients, I have great future, I have great options, I get to speak. And you got a,
0: you got an eyebrow piercing, you got a goatee, you got earrings, you obviously don't I, care I, what I don't people think about all
1: you. Over me. Well, no, here's the thing. I, I can't say I don't care what people think of me visually, but I do want to challenge their acceptance. Now, if I make you look at me and go, mm, I don't think I want to talk to him then you're not the strength of character I want to do business with in any case. Cause if you don't like how I look, sure. Shit. Surely you ain't going to like how I sound. But if you can come across and go, well, the guy's got earrings and he's, you know, he's a biker and stuff like that. You know, I wonder what he's got to say. Then you're challenging yourself to maybe even get a little bit uncomfortable by speaking to someone that's maybe not in your usual sandpit. That's the kind of openness I want. So it Actually, by by kind of pushing people away by my appearance and maybe even my sound and the way that I act, by pushing them away, I get to attract those strength of characters that I really end up enjoying doing business with.
0: Meaning like more authentic people, you think? Because like you said earlier, like, hey, that guy has a Lamborghini. I want to go talk to that guy or gal. Yeah. That guy's got a goatee, earrings, tattoos, and an eyebrow ring. He looks interesting. Let me talk to him.
1: I want those people. I want those people. I like, see, there's a word I hate in the planet at the moment. And it's, and you've just said it, authenticity. Okay. The fact that that word exists is actually quite insulting. Okay. How many times do you look at, uh, you're, you're, you're with someone and someone turns around and goes, Oh, look at that guy or that girl. That's so authentic, you know? When you're recognising that person for being authentic, you're actually recognising that most of the planet is not. It's like you clapping, going, oh, look at that person, he's breathing. You know, we should be able to assume that everyone is their real self. But it's not the case because we've spent the last 10 years actually building up this these personas, these fake images, the Ferraris, the Lamborghinis, the selfies on jets that haven't even fucking left the runway. And you're trying to dictate someone's reaction to you based on superficial poses.
2: Well, it's all a part of the hustle, right? It's
1: It's a hustle. hustle, but it doesn't need to be. Let's change the word authentic and replace it with the word transparent. I want to be able to look at you and I want to be able to see through to your belief, your core, your personality. You say I'm authentic. I don't actually think I am. I think I'm transparent. You look at me and you go, well, I know what he sounds like. I know what he does. And that makes it easier for me to make a decision on to whether or not I want to relate to the guy. So I love transparency. I don't like authenticity. I think everyone should try for transparency.
2: Try, try. Transparency is tough because you got to cover upstream big time to be ultra transparent. So it takes a lot of work to be transparent. Does that's, it? That's just... Do I look as though I've got a
1: lot of effort with you? What's that? Do I look as though I'm exerting a lot of
2: effort to you being me? Um, I don't know. I haven't, I haven't been, uh, you haven't sold me anything yet, but
1: <laughs> yeah, but if I did, then knowing my character wouldn't be one of the questions that come up. See, I'm not going to be selling anyone on this. I'm not going to be pitching anything on this. If anyone's there going, hang on, I need help in XYZ, they're going to Google who the hell Steve Sims is. They're going to find me and they're going to come to me. I'm I'm
2: connecting it to sales because there's so much involved in sales. It's difficult to be ultra transparent because you know, okay, I'll get to that later. I'll get to that.
1: Bullshit. If you wake up in the night and you've got a raging headache, And you go to the to the kitchen cabinet and you pull out your headache tablets. When was the last time you looked at a bottle and went, no, I don't like the logo. I'm going to look for another pack. All you care, all you care is that what's in that bottle is going to solve your headache. Everyone today, they don't want the fancy brochure. They don't want the pretty pictures of you walking your dog and leaning up against your car. They want to know that what you provide them solves your problem, whether it being an accountant, whether it being a plumber, whether it being a hairdresser, whatever it is. Today, people want the transparency to look through the bullshit and go, hey, if you want to be this, do this.
2: I, I overanalyze. I overanalyze because I think of myself as brilliant, right? So, but what I've learned over the years. I, I I just do I just do I've met enough people I, I think but over the years I've learned that the brilliance is in the simplicity and you do that really yep. well in your book so I'm working towards that towards converting the elements of genius towards the simplicity it took me a damn long time to
0: figure that out yeah, I, I always think selfie stick. What if I invented the selfie stick? But <laughs> exactly, I didn't. exactly. Cool. So how simple of an invention is the selfie stick? <laughs> oh, hey, my arm's not long enough. Here's a stick, put your phone on it. I don't have You're, to ask Steve Steve Sim.
2: You have to slow down I don't yeah.
0: have to ask Steve Sim to take a picture of me. He could run away with my phone and I could take selfies of myself. Yeah. So I mean that's that's how I look at things is like selfie stick. I always think selfie stick.
1: Always oh, brilliant. And
2: it, have
1: you have you come across a guy called Peter Diamandis?
0: Yeah, of course, yeah.
1: Right, so Peter, um, Peter's a friend of mine and he was telling me about when they came up with the concept, they wanted to get more civilians coming up with ideas for space travel because he felt at the time NASA was being very slow in any new development. Um, So he actually put up a $10 million prize called the X Prize. Everyone's heard of it. Now that was, if you could send a rocket up into space, bring it back down, refuel it, and send it back up again, you got $10 million. Well, here's a couple of things. He thought to himself, that's going to be such an amazing prize. Uh, Sorry, competition. Everyone's going to want to do it. So he would be able to crowdsource all of this information, and all it would cost him would be $10 million. But do you know one of the problems Peter had? He didn't have $10 million. So what he did was he thought this is going to be such a brilliant prize. We'll sell the name of this prize to somebody. Now, if you Google the X Prize now, you'll actually see that it's called the Ansari Prize. Okay. But when it first came out, it was called the X Prize. And they would change the word, the letter X, to whatever sponsor. Now, Virgin said, no, they're not going to do it. You know, all of these other companies said, no, we're not going to do it. So it ended up being launched and went on as the X Prize until in the end, one of the richest families in India, the Ansari family, purchased the title, but no one knows it as the Ansari Prize. They know it as the X Prize. And here's the other beautiful thing. The, the guy that won it, Burt Rattan, Openly said. The funny thing is, he spent a hundred and twenty million dollars to win ten million dollars, and that is just genius. Simple in its concept. Come up with a concept. You don't even have to worry about getting the money if the concept's good enough. That will flow. And here we are today. We've ne- the uh, Bert Town built it. Scale Composites won the ten million dollars. The Virgin flew in the day before the uh, the release stuck that sticker on the side of it. That's what Richard does paid a bunch of money for the title rights. And now you have Virgin Galactic and it all come from $10 million that Peter didn't have.
2: Yeah. I I love Peter. I think, uh, did he write the book? Uh, is he right? Did he write life force with Tony Robbins and Harari? Was that him?
1: I, I, he, I don't recall. I don't, I should okay. read more, but yeah. he he's Yeah. He's got a lot of Tony. books.
2: Um, yeah, he's got tons of
1: abundance. Yeah. three He's got a whole bunch. Yeah. It of was stuff. Diamandis.
2: Yeah. It is Diamandis. Um, so yeah, he's brilliant. Uh, the, the, so you mentioned Musk and, and Branson, are you friends with these people? Uh, no. Or did did uh, you have some interactions I them? with them? I, I don't yeah. know. If, yeah. If
1: I could walk into a room, I'm going to get a, Hey Steve. Hey Elon. But are we best buddies cuddling up over a cup of tea and cocoa? No.
2: So how 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 do you how did you connect with him? How do you how do you? Uh, I've done a
1: lot of work at either their plants or their events, or um, helping raise money for them, or helping get clients introduced to them. So the the way that I have been able to, and this is a good little spin based on the subject of your show, my protector from going broke was to focus on the relationships. And I found that as long as I had the relationships, every time I hit some shit, I could look through my Rolodex and go, I'm going to speak to him. Hey, Johnny, I've got a problem with this. How's best to handle it? You know, and then they would work. I've had legal problems and I've been able to phone up court justice and go, hey, how would you do this? Ah, You need to speak to this guy and you'll do this, this, this. I had a legal issue. I went into my attorney's um, a few years ago and they were like, "Oh, you've got to do this and this and it." And I had spoken to this guy that I wasn't allowed to name because uh, he's one of the you know big superiors. And uh, I went, "That sounds good, but why don't we do this, 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 this?" And they looked at me and they went, "We're doing that." So when you've got those relationships, everything can protect itself. My rolodex and my secrets are my bank account, my equity.
2: Yeah, nice. Yeah. It's- Good way to look at That's
1: it. That's very cool. It really is. Well, how many times, you know, we've had COVID for two years, okay? And your mates have phoned up and you've done Zoom calls and you've done podcasts. But when was the last time you got phoned up by your bank just to find out how you are?
0: You no. Know, oh, thanks for never calling me.
1: No, they're, they're, never, they're never calling. So in which case, you know, you, you, you've you just got to really focus on those things that can help you.
2: What What is uh, Steve Sim's superpower?
1: I think I've just said it: the power to connect, and when you connect, it's got to be a win-win. You know, I connect with the most powerful people in the planet because I bring something to the party.
0: Can you can he... now with your with your Rolodex, Steve? Do you have like is everyone lumped together, or do you have like I do business with these people? These are like friends and family. How do you how do you separate that out, or is it all just together? Uh,
1: I do have subcategories, um, but the whole Rolodex is together. Because you never know when they can like, the lines are blurred. You can have someone that's a resource for you that ends up becoming a client that ends up becoming a referral lead for it. So they can all end up kind of like, falling in. When I had the concierge firm, um, they were all clients. They were either clients or resources. And when I closed down Bluefish and I focused on Sims Media, a lot of those clients that I had that I was doing you know all of these amazing experiences for. I ended up doing their websites and their branding and their marketing and their event. So they ended up becoming clients again from a different source. So it, I think you've got to leave the uh, categorization as fluid, but they're all in there.
2: Where are you from, Steve? Where's the accent from East London? How long were you there? Uh,
1: Well, I was born just outside of there and I left there. uh, My late teens moved to Hong Kong, ended up working on the door. Um, because I couldn't get a job. Um, and then from Hong Kong, Geneva, sorry, Hong Kong, Bangkok, Geneva, Palm beach. And now I live here in sunny Los Angeles.
2: What took you to Hong Kong?
1: (laughs) A friend of mine was a stockbroker and told me about, uh, they were recruiting stockbrokers, trainee stockbrokers to train them in Hong Kong. And they were going to be making a fortune. So he managed to pull a few strings and get them to interview me. Now, I was a bricklayer at the time, okay? So, not exactly the smoothest cat in the planet. But the good thing is, because they were recruiting so many people, I think they recruited something like about 80 people in like one month. Um, I don't think they really paid attention to who they were letting on. So, they literally sent me a letter, told me congratulations, gave me a ticket. I turned up in Hong Kong, and I'm with all of these like graduates and these guys that have been with all, I lasted. Two days. And then they realized. How was that two days? Huh?
0: How were those two days? Well,
1: the first day, well, I landed on the Saturday and got drunk with them on a Saturday night because I'm very qualified to do that. Um, The Sunday we woke up, we got drunk again. Again, very qualified. On the Monday, I went to orientation where I just stood there going, what the fuck's this? You know, I just like didn't know what was going on. And on the second day, they took me to side, had a couple of little chats with me and realized that I didn't even know the basics. And they were like, this isn't right for you. I don't know how you kind of came through. And they were both, here was the funny thing. You know, I'm six foot, 250 pound, um, always had an earring, always been bald, always had a goatee. These two guys combined were probably the same weight as me. And they're both looking at me and looking at each other, trying to work out, well, you tell him he's fired. No, you tell him he's fired. No, you. And it was obvious that they were shit scared to fire me. And we all ended up starting to laugh because I knew it was coming. And they didn't. And as soon as I started laughing, they started laughing. And then one of them turned around and went, You know, you're fired, don't you? And I went, Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> so that was it. But the funny thing was. Uh, Because they had brought me over there, part of the contract was that they had to give me accommodation for a month. And so in which case, I lasted two days, but I got a month's salary and a month's apartment. And I thought to myself, rejoice. I I, I don't have to go to work. I've been paid. And I've got an apartment. This is brilliant. It was the most expensive city in the planet at the time, Hong Kong. And I think I ran out of money by probably the, the, the second week I was there. Um, and I was trying to get a job, wasn't working. And then one day I'm in a bar and, um, there's this woman that run the bar, who asked me to sort out a fight that was going on inside. And I went in there and kind of sorted it out. And she went, Oh, you, you can work on the door now. And I thought, well, at least I'll get paid. And, and that was it.
2: Speaking of expensive cities, LA and inflation, how's that, uh,
1: well, the oh, good yeah. thing about the good thing about LA is LA's. LA well, when you don't look at your bank account, and you
0: don't care what gas prices. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah,
1: are. yeah, no. Well, I I don't even have a car. I ride motorcycles, so I only have to you know fill a tank of gas up once every two weeks. Um, but the the thing about LA is I've always said LA would be absolutely brilliant if everyone left. Um, there's way too much ego here. Um, but the weather's good. It's very hard to beat that. So I live just outside. In fact, I had a speaking engagement in um, Phoenix, Arizona last, last uh, Monday and Tuesday. Okay. And we're, we're recording this now on the Friday. I didn't leave my house until I went to that speaking gig. I came back from that speaking gig and I still haven't left my house. And I've got no need to leave my house for probably the next four or five days until I have to go down to San Diego for another speaking gig. So I live up in the hills. I live very well. Um, sometimes I'll come out need to wash my head out. So I'll jump on one of the motorbikes, whiz around the canyons, and come back in. So the funny thing is, if I was going to have a dinner party with all of my friends, I couldn't do it in L.A. Because I know more people in probably every other city of the planet than I do here. This is just where I sleep, breathe and eat.
2: Hmm. Why'd you pick LA then?
1: Because there's eternal sunshine. I can literally ride my motorbike down to the airport. I can park it, go and do my speaking gig, come back. And regardless of what time of day or night, the weather's going to be absolutely perfect for me to just ride my motorbike back. I've never... Now my wife, we came from Europe. So we had these things called seasons. You don't get seasons in Los Angeles. So she's starting to kind of miss that. So how long will I be here? I don't know. She's the boss. She'll decide on that. But for now, I just like being here. I'm not here because of its fine culture. (laughs) That's for sure.
2: Yeah, it's definitely a superficial town. That's why I like San Diego. I mean, I'm surprised that, you know, you're not in San Diego if you're for the weather. I actually
1: and like for, more depth. Yeah, for the for the weather, but I've got to admit for the best I I like Santa Barbara, Carmel, Luis Obispo. I like going up north. Mm. Um but uh the more north you go up, the more the rain comes in and if I liked rain, I'd have stayed in England.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That, I, 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 that's awesome. I, I think I did all right. I'm. De- I, I'll tell you. I'm. I'm a little star- starstruck, Steve, to have have you well, on our podcast. So.
1: Well, so you should be.
2: What's that? <laughs> what Just was that?
1: Prick. I said so you should be. <laughs> <laughs>
2: but um. No, the,
1: look, the one thing that I always tell people, and I always finish it off, is I've always been. The standing joke with my wife is that I've never overthought anything. And the yeah. downside is a lot of people are frightened of going for ridiculous goals. I only have ridiculous goals. If you want to make a million dollars at the end of the year, don't go for that. Go for five and fail and get two and a half. So I have always gone for ridiculous goals. How stupid can I do this? How ridiculous can I make this? You know, and I've just gone for that and then failed three times above what I would have settled at. So, and the bottom line of it is, for anyone out there, you're talking to a guy that got kicked out of school at the age of 15, yet has lectured at Harvard twice. If I can do it, anybody can.
2: Yeah, I- Schools are, well, do you think, what kind of learner are you? Audio, kinesthetic, or visual?
1: Well, oh, that's, a, that's, that's a very good question. And I think at varying, depending on the subject matter, it can be any one of those three. But mm-hmm. all three of those, when they are applied together, is full engagement. Um, I am not a very good um, classroom person. You know, which would I'm be really au- au- usually up. audio uh,
2: because yeah, but like through.
1: if it's just if I'm talking to someone and I'm conversing with someone, then it's all, You know, I'm I'm hearing it yeah. and I'm receiving it and I'm good. But if I'm in a room full of fifty people, my natural reaction is just to clam up and not let as much in um, because I'm not getting it directed into my eyeballs.
0: So are you are you more introverted, Steve?
1: I am introverted. Yeah.
0: Because a lot of people like mistake introvert and extrovert. Like you're probably the life of the party when you're doing a speaking engagement. Cause you have, to. however you said you stay, stay at your house for a week and you could probably not talk to anyone except your wife and be, be good with it.
1: Yeah. It does supply you. what well on Joshua. You you picked up on that. Like when you do these, like after this, I'm going to go and have a cappuccino and sit down. Okay. Um, and there's been times when I've done too many interviews in the day and I'm dead. Um, so I, I do. What's this, a friend of mine, Jim quick, and she is very good. He said, you've got to become an optional extrovert. Uh, and, and that's, that's where I am. I'll pull it out when I need to and I'll do my thing and I'll be the shining star on the stage and I'll take the selfies afterwards. And then I'm running to my hotel room and I'm just going to hide in my room for 45 minutes.
2: What are you doing there reading? What are you doing? <laughs>
1: That's a bit private, isn't it?
2: Well, <laughs> I, uh, what, are, are you a reader?
1: I do read. I do read. I do listen to music a lot. So in those situations, when I get back, I'll throw, some, throw my headphones on and just listen to music and just try to kind of like get myself into a different state of mind. Um, I, I won't run back to the room and pick up a book because I need to be in a calm state of mind to be able to open up a book. And coming off a stage is never a calm state of mind.
2: What are you reading right now?
1: I'm actually reading a book on Boyd, Captain Boyd. Um, And uh, a friend of mine, I actually did an event down in San Diego. We run these events called Speakeasies all over America. Is that Joe
2: Polish? Is that with Joe Polish?
1: Uh, No, Joe actually spoke at my Speakeasy in Arizona. Uh, The Speakeasy is, is my event. It's a maximum of 40 people. And all we ever tell people is the city and the date. And that's it. And then we bring in some pretty earth shadows. I've had Jay Abraham, Roland Frazier, Joe Polish, Jim Quick, Ari Mizell, Jeffrey Madoff. I've had a ton of people in there. And the last one we did in San Diego, we had one of the heads of the Navy SEAL teams um, come in that told us about the OODA loop and how you were supposed to use the OODA loop to um, be able to make a non-emotive decision under a highly stressed environment and apparently the guy that designed the ooda loop was his captain boyd so i'm now reading his story
2: what what is an ooda OODA loop
1: i'm actually going through it now but it's observe observe observation objective it's like these like five things that you are supposed to in your head go through mm -hmm. that will actually lead to the most rational decision to give you the outcome you need and this captain boyd um it's supposed to be on the same wavelength and category as sun tzu the art of war these two guys are supposed to be uh, the greatest strategists in the planet and he came up with the UDA loop the navy seal teams use now that when they go into a room and they've been given bad information they run through the ooda loop in like one second to be able to make a rational decision that's not based on emotion because you run into a stressful situation And it's all emotions. Ah, shit, shoot it. You know, you're all over the place. But they work on the OODA loop, and that's what I'm going through now.
2: How do we get Steve on the 369 team, Josh?
0: Be transparent.
1: (laughs) There you go. Josh has been paying attention.
2: That's why we got him around. I do my best.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, thanks, Steve, for hopping on. What are you, like, most – excited about what you're working on now that like you'd want people to go to or how we can support you
1: uh, there's many where you're currently things. are in your life. Um, I launched, I launched Sims.media about two and a half years ago. And I will arrogantly say it's probably one of the leading media companies out there at the moment, helping people brand and market Um, uh, because we just do things a little bit differently. And they seem to be working. We got everyone, you know, linked up there from, and John to, to Jim Quick uh, and Joe Polish, actually, as you mentioned. Um, and so I'm doing a lot there. My speakeasies are great fun, but I suppose the exciting thing I'm working on at the moment is my second book. Um, so I'm writing my, my second book, go for stupid and we're actually aligning it with a really cool NFT project. So there's some special kind of access that if you go to stevedsims.com, you can actually see about it. But, for people to purchase NFTs, we're starting to do these competitions where we're just doing these random drawings and they get to have dinner with me or they get to come to my speakeasy or I'll coach them. Or if you really want to jump in, you get to go to my launch party. And my last launch party was pretty freaking amazing. So I- how, do, how do I get
0: to this party, Steve? How do, how do, how do I get to this party? These,
2: uh, the, is this four, group of 40, how do you break into that?
1: So, <laughs> so this, you, you're on two conversations there. To get to, the launch party, to get to the launch party, go to stevedsims.com and click on the NFT link. That'll give you details on there. We only open up the window for like a two-month period. So I think the next window we open up, looking at the date, is like the 15th of March. And then after that, we close it. Um, but if you want to come to a speakeasy, literally just go to stevedsims.com. Click on the link that says Speakeasy. And the next one's in New York on, I think it's May the 10th and 11th. And
0: that's Steve, D as in Delta, Sims.com. That's correct. And your new book is Go For Stupid? Yep. My friend's mom would always tell us something, Andrew. If you're going to be smart, if you're going to do something dumb, be smart about it.
1: Yeah, that's that's a good one.
0: It kind of blew my mind, so here we go.
2: That's true. I get that one. (laughs) I get it now. Cool. Well, thanks again, Steve.